Some of you know that I have the opportunity twice a year to spend three days with the incoming recruits at the Anne Arundel County Police Academy leading communications and leadership fundamentals. In fact, besides induction day, it's the first three days of their nine-month training. The colleague I assist has developed this organizational culture-shaping curriculum over three-plus decades in business. One of the things he often says is, our culture pushes binary and simple, while we live in a world of paradox and complexity. Solutions to big problems are almost never simple, and, if, and we are faced every day with things that seem contradictory and are simultaneously both true. For that reason, I've never heard him say this but that, disciplining himself rather to this and that. For example, when our kids want something from us and for good and loving reasons, the answer's no, we might be tempted to say something like, I love you, but I'm gonna have to say no. As if loving our child and saying no are in opposition or contradictory, when in fact, no may be the most loving thing that we can say to them. Tony would say, I love you, and no. <laughs> and as I've come more and more to see paradox as compliment, rather than contradiction, it's allowed me to see much more beauty in people generally and opened up all kinds of relational possibilities with all kinds of people. It's also helped frame why I experience certain people in my life, despite their human sinfulness, as truly admirable and excellent and beautiful. I mention this because I got to spend most of Wednesday evening with some, someone dear to me who was in Baltimore on business. I've known him as a friend for well over a decade, and more and more as time goes on, I've come to experience him as an admirable and excellent person in the truest sense of the words. I can't tell you simply why this is, because it's not simple. He possesses numerous, very diverse qualities that seem opposed or contradictory, but are simultaneously both true. He's a career warrior and shockingly tender-hearted. He's financially frugal, some might say cheap, and unflinchingly generous. He's fiercely loyal and uncompromisingly straightforward as regards accountability but always kind. He makes me both relaxed and exhausted. The balance or maybe better tension of these qualities is complex. And over the last several years, I've come to realize that the highest and deepest and most admirable people in my life, men and women, are simply not simple. They're a fusion of often seemingly contradictory qualities that are simultaneously both true. And that's much of what makes them beautiful. We see this in the fifth chapter of Revelation, and you can turn to it in your Bible or uh, your device if you want. We're gonna just kind of 
park there for these next few minutes. We see this in the fifth chapter of Revelation as St. John in an apocalyptic vision is taken to heaven's throne room where Jesus is announced as a lion. But what he sees is a lamb. Seemingly contradictory qualities that are simultaneously both true. Paradox that makes Jesus beautiful and excellent and worthy and truly admirable. The thing I'm trying to illustrate and what makes Jesus Christ stand out as uniquely admirable is this. His beauty and excellence and worthiness consist in the tension of exceptionally diverse and seemingly contradictory qualities that are simultaneously all true. For example, we admire him for his glory and even more because his glory is mingled with humility. We admire him for his transcendence, but even more because his transcendence is accompanied by imminence, nearness. We admire him for his uncompromising justice and even more because his character is always to have mercy. We admire him for his majesty and even more because it's majesty in meekness. We admire him because of how deserving he was of all good and even more because this was accompanied by a shocking willingness to suffer evil. We admire him because of his sovereign dominion over the world, and even more because his dominion was clothed with obedience and submission. We love the way he owned the Pharisees with his wit and wisdom, and we love it even more because he could be simple enough to just love children and give his time to them. And we admire him because he could still the storm and even more because he refused to use that power to get himself down from the cross. He stayed. The list could go on and on, but you see that Jesus's beauty and excellence and worthiness, those things that make him so singularly admirable is full of paradox and complexity. It's an infinite fusion, a, a, a tension really in one person of exceptionally diverse qualities. And in Revelation 5, 5, John writes, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus here is described as a lion, an animal who, who makes easy prey of others, is strong, wild, majestic, and dangerous. I love what St. Augustine said when he was talking about truth in one of his best-known metaphors. You don't have to defend a lion. Simply let it loose, and it will defend itself. That's a lion. Then, in verse 6, John's allowed to see this lion. And what he sees had to have been a shock after the words of the elder in the previous verse. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the lion is a lamb, easy prey, weak, harmless, lowly, sheared for our clothes and killed for our food. And because Jesus is simultaneously both 
lion and lamb, truly admirable and excellent and worthy and beautiful. He has the right, as it says in verse 12, to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To see how this is revealed in this passage, I'd like to make three general observations for context, but just first, just another quick word about Revelation, because I think Steve's going to be preaching from Revelation again, again um, next week. Just super high altitude. You know, Anglicans are used to hearing parts of Revelation in the lectionary year, some years more than others, but most often it's passages describing the new Jerusalem, the final heavens and earth that shaped, that shaped chapters 20 and 21 and 22, rather. What happens on the way to reaching the place where Christ fully exercises his kingship is the stuff of the middle chapters where we're getting into now, shaped by immense conflict between Christ and his army of martyrs on the one side and the prostitute of Babylon and a series of beasts on the other. Borrowing from Old Testament images, the beasts and the prostitute are symbols of the military power and economic wealth of nations, two places where human beings consistently place idolatrous, idolatrous trust, usurping the rightful lordship of Christ. John is writing to seven churches in, in what's Turkey today, struggling in the cauldron of the Roman Empire to encourage them, to, to paint a picture of the majesty of Christ so compelling that they will come to love him and trust him and follow him no matter the cost. And the cost for them will be high. So three observations about chapter five. The first is that God has absolute control of the future and everything that happens in it. I went into this somewhat at length last week, so I'm not going to, but I just want to say that's the point of verse one. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. The scroll contains God's plan for the future, which we see as the book unfolds, the struggles and victories of the gospel, as well as the judgments of those who reject it. The opening of the seals is the course of history leading up to the end, and the rest of the scroll is the story of further judgment and final triumph of God's kingdom. The completeness of his rule and the perfection of his degrees is signified by the fact that the scroll is written within and on the back. In other words, the scroll is packed. There are no spaces for later additions. The plan is complete. It's full. And it's safe in the hand of the king. And he's on the throne. This is a picture of God's sovereign rule over all that will happen. And not to just bring us to our faces in reverence and fear. Secondly, no creature in the universe is worthy to reveal and execute the final decrees of God. Verses 2 and 3, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Someone had to be found who was worthy to take the scroll and open it. And that the point of verses 2 and 3 is that there's no creature, no created thing in all the universe who can do it. 
No angel in heaven, no, no man on earth, no devil in hell can touch this scroll and do what needs to be done to bring the consummation of the kingdom. I think this shows us something incredibly significant, and it's this. God is a God of infinite love. Because even though he has every right to break the seals himself, he will not open this scroll of judgment without the hands of a savior. Which leads us to the third observation from verse four. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. If there's no one found who's worthy to open the scroll, then there will be no triumph for the gospel, no consummation, no marriage supper of the lamb, no new heaven and new earth, no eternal life, only weeping. Therefore, Jesus Christ is utterly necessary for every one of us. He alone is worthy to open the seals and execute God's final decrees. Which brings us to verses five and six, the, the point where we began. Because Jesus is both lion and lamb, he is utterly worthy. He alone has the right to bring history as we know it to its end for the glory of his name and for the good of his people, his bride. Look at, at verse 5 again in light of these three observations I, I just made. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There was just one person who can open the scroll, namely the lion of Judah. And the reason that he's worthy to open the scroll is that like a lion, he has conquered. But what does this conquering refer to? Well, we see that in verses 9 and 10. Here, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and worship the Lamb, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And it's important that we take note of the relationship between verses 5 and 9. In verse 5, the reason that Jesus, the Lion of Judah, can open the scroll is that as a lion, he has conquered. But in verse, and in verse 9, the reason he can open the scroll is because as a lamb, he was slain and by his blood ransomed men and women for God. In other words, his right to open the scroll is because he ransomed people for God by his death, and his ransoming was the victory referred to in verse 5. What sort of lion was he? The lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to become a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne, and he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to slaughter. He drove out the crooked money changers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of that same week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife and they slaughtered the lion like a lamb. So he conquered sin and death and hell and Satan, not just because he was a lion, but because he was paradoxically, simultaneously a lamb. It was a tactical defeat that resulted in strategic victory. 
the lion gaining the victory by the tactics of the lamb. Jonathan Edwards was an early 18th century American revivalist and preacher and widely regarded as one of America's most important and original early theologians. And just as a point of trivia, because you've probably heard his name before, he was the grandfather of Aaron Burr, the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton. I hated that guy in the musical. <laughs> but I digress. Edwards captured the paradox of the victorious victim really well in one of his letters with this comparison. The devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ, just as the whale did Jonah, but it was deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of, this mor of his morsel and was forced to do by him as the whale did by Jonah. To this day, he is heartsick of what he then swallowed as his prey. And so it is with Christ. The lion has conquered sin. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After conquering sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He conquered death. 2 Timothy 1.10, our savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and he conquered satan hebrews 2 14 and 15 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death that is satan and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery and he did it when he took the role of a lamb and died but not only is this lion a lamb, this lamb is a lion. Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Just a couple of things. First, the lamb is standing. It's not slumped up in a heap on the ground as it once was. It had been slain, but now it was standing, standing in the innermost circle next to the throne. Second, the lamb has seven horns, horns being the symbol of strength and power throughout the book of Revelation as well as in the Old Testament. And the number seven signifies fullness and completeness. In Revelation 6, 16, men and women call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And Revelation 17, 4, where the final enemies of God fight against Christ, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is King of kings and Lord of lords. This isn't an ordinary lamb. <laughs> this is a lion. And here's the point. And in conclusion, I guess I should say everyone's three favorite words when I'm preaching. Here's the point. Jesus is the highest and deepest, the most excellent and beautiful and admirable person who has ever lived. 
and because of the resurrection still lives today. And he's simply not simple. He's a fusion of infinite and seemingly contradictory qualities. I believe, and I believe the, the human heart was made to stand in awe of ultimate excellence. We were made to admire and worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And that's why it's so important to catch just a flicker of the excellency of Christ today. And my prayer is that in doing that, we will come to love him and trust him and follow him, no matter the cost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>